As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. dudes what's up we're back yeah we are i feel like we say we're back every week and it shouldn't be a surprise at this point i guess that we're it's like coming back like you knew it <laughs> you're like duh spoiler alert listening. we're here <laughs> yeah okay so welcome back here we are um if you have never listened to us before hello welcome um and also just to give you a little heads up This is a discussion podcast. We're going to talk at you. We're going to talk with you. You know? Yeah. It's going to be like friends gabbing about some true crime. If you're looking for like forensic files, like just podcast form. Yeah, just facts and a script and like the whole thing. We're probably not the right one for you. Yeah, we're not going to be your cup of tea. So. You know, we just want to put that out there because we know we're not for everybody. If you and wanna, that's totally fine. Yeah, if you want to take a chance on an unknown kid, let's do it. <laughs> and if you enjoy 90s references in the form of Valley Girl speaking, mm-hmm. then stick around. Yeah, a lot of what we say is very obscure movie quotes. And also sounds really stupid. Yeah. But we think we're so funny. Yeah. So... So you're welcome. Buckle up. (laughs) Here we go. Okay, so today we're going to be covering the disappearance and murder of Polly Class. And this will be a rough one. I feel like they all are, but it's just rough. Um, We used the episode, I think it's episode one. It's the first one, yeah. Yeah. Oh, she says so right here. Uh, From FBI Files. You can find that on Hulu. Now, quick question though. FBI Files, is the narrator the same one as the one from Forensic Files? Okay. I I meant to Google him because he sounds so familiar. Similar, yeah. I'm like, who is this? I know this voice. Yeah, it, it sounds like it is. And special, couple special thank yous. Uh, one to Maddie Larson. She suggested this case using our case suggestion form. So, hey girl, thanks. I liked the hey girl thanks. I wasn't expecting it because I thought you were just going to hey girl hey. Mm. You took a turn I wasn't ready for. Yeah, this is a thankful hey girl hey. Sweet. So it's a hey girl thanks. <laughs> and Sloan researched this one for us and typed it all up into a beautiful uh, outline slash script. So hey girl thanks. <laughs> 
On the night of Friday, October 1st, 1993, in Petaluma, California, 12-year-old Polly Class lived with her mother, Eve Nickel, and her 6-year-old sister, Annie. Her two friends, both also 12 years old, Kate and Jillian, were going to come over that night and do what preteen girls do best, have a slumber party. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Do you think they played girl talk? I hope they played girl talk, and I also hope that they, like, choreographed a ton of dances to various songs that were Absolutely. popular at the Paula Abdul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Little Janet Jackson. hey Yeah. So they are having a slumber party. Jillian was the first to arrive, and while she and Polly waited for Kate's mother to drop her off, they walked down to a nearby convenience store to buy popsicles. And that's a that's kind of important because the route that they would have had to take to get to that convenience store passes a place called Wickersham Park. And that's kind of an area where homeless people hang out, drug deals are made. Like there's going to be some seedy characters in that area. So they would have had to walk past that, you know, going to the convenience store and coming back. So when they got back from buying the popsicles, they waited on the doorstep for Kate to arrive. And the girls spent that evening having just like a regular 90s preteen sleepover. They were trying on costumes because Halloween was coming up. Kate was dressed as a hippie. And Jillian was doing Polly's makeup to make her... I don't know if maybe she was going to try and go as a zombie or something, but she was trying to do like... Like a scary something. Yeah, like whatever. So, and they changed several times. They did all, you know, different kinds of outfits. The last thing that Polly ended up putting on was a white denim skirt and a like pink top. They played Nintendo. They were just like hanging out, having a good time. Around 9.45 p.m., Polly's mom, Eve, came in to look in on the girls, and she told them to keep it down because she and Annie were going to go to bed. She also reportedly said that she had a migraine, and she took some medication for it once she got in the bedroom, and her bedroom was, like, across the hall from Polly's room. And that also basically put her to sleep. I guess that's, like, it was strong medication. Usually anything for a migraine. has to be pretty strong, right? And I think I've never had a migraine, luckily, but, and I feel terrible for anybody who has because they sound terrible. Like you can get so violently ill that you like throw up about it and light hurts you and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like the only way to get past something like that is just to fall asleep about it. Yeah, for sure. If you can, you know? Yeah, Yeah, I'm prone to them. I haven't gotten them as much lately, although I did have one yesterday, but like, yeah, the only way I can get past it is to sleep it off. And a lot of times that's hard because like even the weight of a pillow or whatever feels like somebody is beating you in the head with a brick. I mean, it's insane. It's so terrible. But um, I have had prescription medication for it too. Sometimes I've had to go and just get shots and then like somebody would have to drive me home because it'll like just knock you out. But Or you could just stop being so sensitive. Mm-hmm. I could get a lobotomy. You could. There you go. <laughs> um, Simple fix. There you go. So whatever Eve took that night, um, I don't know if it was prescription medication or if it was just like Excedrin or whatever, but whatever it was, she was sleeping pretty hard. Um, and then Annie was in there actually with her. So about an hour later, around 1030, 1045, Polly opened the bedroom door to go get sleeping bags. So the girls were like, 
getting ready to go to bed. When she opens the door, she came face to face with an intruder. Can you fucking imagine? No. At first, Kate and Jillian actually thought it was a joke. I don't know. I guess they were just trying to rationalize it away. I just can't imagine how scary that would be. But then they saw that this man was holding a knife. So then they thought, okay, this is serious. The intruder told the three girls that if they screamed, he'd slit their throats and that he wasn't going to hurt them if they did what he said. He told them to lie face down on the floor and not to look at him while he tied them up. He started asking them questions. Who lives here? Who else is home? Polly did tell him that her mom and her sister were there that she lived there, and she said, please don't hurt my mom and sister. He told her or them that he was just there for money and he wasn't going to hurt anybody, and Polly told him that she had money in her jewelry box, but he made no attempt to look for it. So the girls started getting worried at that point, thinking, if you want money, why are you not getting the money? Like, even, even them being 12 years old, they knew that something was wrong. The man gagged them and put pillowcases over their heads, And then he made Polly get up so she could show him where the valuables were in the house. He told Kate and Jillian not to worry. He was just taking her so that she could show him where the valuables were, count to a thousand. And by the time they counted all the way up to a thousand, she'd be back and he'd be gone. But Polly never came back. And this whole ordeal took less than 10 minutes. Like, can you imagine? Insane. Being Polly or Jillian or, you know, like that, just it's so, so scary. And or like being her mom. I mean, there's so many people that say stuff like because this is kind of if you kind of look at it through the scope of skepticism and look at it and say, hmm, and I'm in no way blaming anybody I'm just saying like you could look at it this way her mom took medicine so that she slept really hard she's got girls sleeping over and a kid in her bed what are the odds that the night that she takes this thing and she sleeps through this whole ordeal that somebody breaks in and steals her kid or whatever like you know when you look at people who point fingers at parents while they're doing investigations or whatever like Why did he only take Polly and not the other girls? Why did he not hurt anybody else? You know, there's all these things that you look at. Um, He didn't bring that knife with him. He he picked it up in the house. Why would somebody not bring a knife with them if they're going to break into somebody's house? There's all these things. I mean, we even got a review on our Darley episode um, on iTunes, and the person said that basically we're obsessed with Darley, and we are obsessed with her implants, which, like, if you listen to that episode, you have done missed the whole point. But she was saying that, like, pointed out that kind of stuff. And I get it. Like, those are questions to be raised. I mean, there's a lot of questions in that investigation to be raised. But, you know, this person, I think it's a woman, I don't know, pointed out, like, well, but this person, why would he not even bring his own knife? Why would he use a knife in the house? Like saying that it had to have been Darley because of that. And I just don't think that's enough. Like it does happen. It does happen. This guy did that. So. Well, and to think about like any house that I go into, that's not what I'm thinking specifically about. But if I go into your house, if I go anybody's house, I know there are going to be certain things in the house. 
And in the kitchen, there's always going to be a knife. Always. Yeah. You may not be able to find a gun or whatever, but yeah, you're you're definitely going to be able to find a knife. Yeah. It's just It's just a given fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these are things that do happen. So it, you know, unfortunately there is like wrong place, wrong time. You know, it's just stuff that does happen. So this night now had her mom heard any of this, I don't know what the outcome would have been. I don't think she would have been able to prevent something bad happening if an adult had been, present he may have lashed out and hurt everybody right then um I mean I don't think I don't think that she could have changed it and I'm sure she feels guilt for being in the house yeah I can't imagine how I she mean feels. yeah parents I feel like we feel guilt every day all day for everything that we've done so I can't imagine losing a child you know but I don't think there's anything she could have done but these things do happen and they do happen even in those exception to the rule kind of times you know it's like that doesn't necessarily mean anything when Kate and Jillian finished counting and then Polly still hadn't come back they ended up working to free themselves from the bindings that they'd been tied up with and they woke up Eve so they all searched the house for Polly they couldn't find her and so Eve called the police at about 11 p.m. this is another thing to you know, pay attention to the timeline because it's tight. It all happens very, very quickly. He's in and out of that house in less than 10 minutes. And then this is only a few minutes later, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, they've already called the police. Within minutes, the police are at the house and Sergeant Mike Meese led the investigation. Eve told the police that she didn't notice any valuables missing at the time. That's another thing too, I feel like this case that didn't happen, you know, people didn't bring up like that it was staged or anything like that, really. But um, I mean, that's just another thing. Like there are situations where somebody breaks in and they don't take stuff. They take a person, they hurt a person. Sometimes it's a home invasion gone wrong, like whatever, but there are times when people don't take valuables. So Mm -hmm. it's just, I don't know. I don't know why I'm harping on that today, but yeah, get over yourself. Like all of these things are the case in this situation. It's just interesting. Yeah, it is super interesting. Investigators quickly found the binding materials. They found clogs or claws. (laughs) They found no (laughs) cloth, (laughs) Uh, Nintendo cords, The guy cut the Nintendo cords. That's just a bitch move. Come on. I know. The strap of a purse and pillowcases were all around. There was pretty much no other evidence that was obvious right away. So the Petaluma police took the rug from Polly's room, hoping to get any fibers or hairs. They knew this was a big case and that time was of the essence, so they called the FBI, which is excellent that Mm -hmm. they did that I feel like so many times in cases we hear you know these smaller police departments being like I can do it I can handle it I've got a big old dick (laughs) let me do it and this time they were like look we got kids life on the line let's call them big guns like we need help the FBI got to the house a little after midnight so like nobody's fucking wasting any time here thank god I mean they're there immediately 
and Special Agent Ed Fryer led the investigation for the FBI. All the investigators, police officers, detectives, everybody that was there working on the case knew that stranger abductions are extremely hard to solve because there's no connection between the victim and the perpetrator, and there's little to go on other than witnesses. Because most kidnappings are done by family members, the investigators look into and subsequently clear her father, Mark Class. So, of course, they're going to have to look at that first because that's like 99% of the time what happens. Um, But the family was cleared really, really quickly. Kate and Jillian spent two hours with a sketch artist that night. Um, They were taken to police headquarters around 4 a.m. So they were able to get a composite drawing of the perpetrator out pretty quickly. He didn't wear a mask or anything. Bold bitch. I mean, yeah. Investigator Tony Maxwell stated that when someone, especially a child, is kidnapped, they're generally harmed within the first 24 hours, and if they make it past that, they're usually dead within the first couple days. So, again, they're, like, really harping on the fact that time is of the essence. I mean, that's why the show The First 48 is even a thing. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's like if you don't find them in the first 48 hours, then the odds of you finding them alive are slim to none. Yeah. And there, I don't know if you remember the show, Oxygen doesn't do it anymore, but they had a show called Three Days to Live for a little while. And it was people who went missing or were abducted or whatever. Um, I I think it was all abductions, I guess. So what they were saying is that if you don't find them in the first 72 hours, then you're not going to pretty much female host I don't remember um it was really really well done and it was if you didn't google the case while you were watching it you didn't know if the person was found alive or not um but they only did like a few episodes and it's not on anymore but you know that kind of stuck in my head too was like that 72 hour mark um But either way, you know, you're looking at the first few days. I mean, the likelihood of somebody keeping somebody for a long time is low. I mean, you got Gary Heidnick, Ariel Castro. There are people who have done it, but it's not nearly as common. The FBI called in evidence response team who brought far more sophisticated technology than was available to the Petaluma Police Department. And in fact, they brought the most sophisticated technology available at that time. So they said, no, 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 no. We just came out with the new TR-2700. I'm making this up. Oh, wow. And uh, so we're going to bring that sucker over there. Yeah. They like, they brought everything like brand spanking new. State of the art. State of the art. The Aromatic 500. They were even considering faxing each other. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah. So... They brought in an electrostatic dust print machine, and it's used to collect tiny hairs and fibers off the floor by running a positive charge over mylar sheets. Basically, I feel like what they did was they took a balloon, they rubbed it on your head, and then let everything stick to it, you know? Right. It's like, that's basically what happened. Wow. So... Like, I saw it on Bill Nye the Science Guy. It's going to work. It's going to work, yeah. The fibers and hairs clung to the mylar, and then they sent those to the lab. The police had checked for fingerprints, but they didn't find any with their equipment. The evidence response team, though, used an alternate light source where a unique fluorescent powder combined with this 
distinct UV light and amber-colored goggles are used to illuminate fingerprints. Using this new technology, the team was able to illuminate four dozen fingerprints. Um, Unfortunately, all the fingerprints they found were from friends and family. However, after searching hours in the room, the team found a palm print on Polly's bedpost as though it was leaned on. However, APHIS, which is the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, does not store palm prints on file. So the special agent that they spoke to about this, Mark Mershon, said that finger or palm prints won't catch a suspect typically, but they can just confirm the suspect once they're caught. So that's, I don't know, kind of disappointing. It's very disappointing. Yeah. But at least they have the palm print. And it's just amazing to me because when we hear about these cases, we think, or I think like, oh, okay, well, they did a quick dusting of the whole area. It took, what, maybe 20 minutes or so. And it's like, no, this is hours, like painstaking. Yeah, this is like, yeah, hours, hours, hours. And I also, like, in this episode, when they talked about the palm print, like, we'll get into the palm print a little bit later, but when they talk about the palm print and they talk about the guy analyzing it and finding, you know, whether or not it's a match, the guy is taking, like, I don't know, this, like, pen or something, And he is looking at the palm print through a magnifying glass. And he's counting the ridges ridges or whatever. So he's just like, one, two, three, four. And I'm like, is this this what you're telling me is an exact match? Is this guy counting? Like, when you have so many things to count and they're that little... How many times do you, you're like, Fuck, I got to start over. Like, um, I cross stitch because I'm an elderly lady and count fucking boxes. It's impossible because I'll get to like 21, 20, fuck. Yeah, exactly. And then you yeah. have to start over and you're like, okay. Yeah. And then you're on, am whatever. I in the right row? Whatever. Like, yeah. So I just feel like that's got a lot of room for human error and yeah. for him to be able to tell if it's a definitive match or not. I'm like, I don't know how much I trust that. But, well, I mean, humans are capable. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes sometimes. Everybody makes mistakes. I can't believe that I just compared someone, like a crime scene investigator, to my cross-stitching. Who the fuck do I think I am? <laughs> like, I, no, I know what pressure is because I cross-stitch, and that shit is hard. You know what you are is you're a podcaster, and that's what we do. <laughs> We're like, um, the police fucked this investigation all up, okay? <laughs> yeah. Like... Because we know. Um, But thank God they have that palm print because, again, you know, we're talking about a stranger abduction. How else are they going to, I mean, without something like that, you're not, you need that palm print. You need something because. Like proof that someone was actually That he was there. there. Yeah, because he doesn't know the family. So we need to be able to put him in that bedroom so that we can lock his ass away. By dawn, over a hundred officers are on a 24-hour search. Helicopters and bloodhounds are brought in. They issued an APB, which is an all-points bulletin, and every house in the neighborhood was searched. Interviews were even performed at Polly's school. They were just going around talking to everybody they could find to get any information they could get. And In the early stages of this investigation, there was a theory going around that possibly Polly had left on her own, like run off with a boyfriend. And it's like... She's 12. She's fucking 12. Preposterous. I know. Wow. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's how upset I am about that. That's insane. She's 12 years old. Yeah. In what fucking world is she going to run off with a boyfriend? And also, she didn't even have a boyfriend. Right? My first boyfriend, I wasn't... I was a junior in high school when I got my first boyfriend, so... I'm what you would call a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Polly was having boyfriends. But I feel like at that age, I did have a boyfriend at that age, and that, for me, consisted of talking on the phone. But what about that one case that we did with that little girl... Well, I call her a little girl, Jasmine, that How, was dating that boy. She was 13, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess it does happen. Could happen. It's all the hormones and the chicken, you know? I know. But that back then, though? No, not back then. So Polly wouldn't have done that. No. I mean, she wouldn't have anyway. We know this. But, yeah, the hormones aren't until later. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I feel like at that age, even if you do have a boyfriend, <laughs> I don't know. To me, there was no way I could have run off with somebody at that age. I'm like, where y'all going to go to the skating rink? Well, yeah. And also, like, I was so at that age, I was still like really following, you know, rules all the time or whatever. So I'm like, okay, if we're going to run off together, like, how are we going to get there? My mom won't let me cross the street without holding hands. Like, you know, it's like, how how are we going to, what are we going to do? I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed. No. Exactly. During the canvas of the neighborhood, several neighbors reported seeing a stranger in the neighborhood that night who fit the description that Polly's friends had given to the sketch artist. But none of them reported it at the time. They were. It was just after the canvassing, correct? Yeah, nobody reported it. No one's like you in your neighborhood where you just <laughs> sit and watch everyone. Right. You know, this is weird, though. That was one thing I did want to... I wanted to know about this neighborhood was whether or not it was a neighborhood where everybody knew everybody in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Like in my... Like how we're from the country and we like it that way. Everybody? Yeah, I'm not guessing it. Okay. (laughs) Um, So... It just, when you said, the way you said it reminded me of either Cheers or Tracy Bird, I guess, so... I like that you went with Tracy Bird. It was a good one. Thanks. Yeah. Um, You know, in this neighborhood, I, I know my neighbors directly next to me, but I will see some of the same people over time, but I also every single day see people I have no idea who they are driving walking like whatever so our neighborhood is like super active people are always out walking and I rarely will see the same people so I wonder if these people did not report seeing somebody walking around because they were like there's always people walking around that we don't know but at night like that well and we're going to get to some of the sightings and They are suspicious. Mm -hmm. So Thomas Georges was going to the video store around 9 p.m. when he noticed a stranger in front of Polly's house. And he said he saw that stranger was still there when he came back. Thomas's description matched the description by Kate and Jillian. So that one, you know, he's like, I saw a guy. He was just still standing there. Okay. 13-year-old Kamika Milstead saw someone matching the description getting out of his car carrying a bag or a box And that would have been between 8 and 9 because Kate's mom, when she was dropping her off, actually saw, like, she and Kamika were seeing this at the same time. So Kate's mom, when she was dropping Kate off, said that this man was walking toward her car and he looked like he was going to just barrel right into her car. It was like he wasn't watching where he was going. So... She said she kind of like lurched her car forward to get his attention. Like, hey, you're about to run into my car. And she said that she noticed he was carrying something that looked like a bag or a box. And I think Kamika was on the other side of the street. But she saw 
that same interaction. It was the same time. Between 10 and 10.30 p.m., Talia Miller was returning from a movie with her uncle, and when he was about to drop her off, Talia saw a man carrying a duffel bag walking towards her house. She asked her uncle to wait until the quote-unquote scary-looking man passed the car. As soon as he passed, he looked into the car and slid his hand over his face like he was trying to conceal it. The man was wearing dark clothing. He had combed back collar-length hair and a gray patched beard. So that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Sean Bush was playing video games with his friends in the granny unit in the back of Polly's house when he went out to smoke a cigarette at around 10.30 p.m. And I guess, like, a, a granny unit... I mean, we call it here like a mother-in-law's suite or something. Yeah, yeah. like a little guest house kind of thing almost. So, mm-hmm. like something maybe above the garage or yeah, an adjoining like type. Yeah, yeah. So he, this one was in the back of the house. So he said he goes out to smoke a cigarette and he sees a strange man on the back porch of Polly's house going for the back door. And the description matched the description that all thirty-eight other people saw that night in the neighborhood. But again nobody reported this i feel like i don't know i feel like seeing a guy that you don't know like if he lives in the back of polly's house it seems like he knows their family and if somebody you don't know is trying to get in a back door like that would be a good one to report i feel like yeah or at least check in with them or something yeah or just make a call and be like hey you know there's, there's, a sky. there's a sky. Could you just come, like, drive by, take a look? Like, yeah, you know. Definitely. Whatever. Unfortunate. The FBI's standard operating procedure is to check the family first, but since Polly's family was cleared, they went ahead and moved on to ex-cons in the county and surrounding counties, but nothing showed up. This had quickly become the largest manhunt in the nation, and tens of thousands of flyers were handed out. At the same time, the FBI's trace evidence lab was looking at the cloth that was used to tie up the girls. The cloth appeared to be like a slip or a lady's nightgown type of material, and they found that the strips from the two girls were jagged like they were cut with scissors and could be lined up together like a puzzle. This part was kind of funny for me in that episode because the the guy had the strips, you know, kind of like in a... Uh, they were like framed like in a shadow box or something and he's like see here I was able to match these up and I mean it's like imagine like a kid's puzzle piece you know those like giant puzzle pieces that fit together it's like I it's a puzzle with two pieces exactly like it, it wasn't like this really intricate yeah and he was like yeah see how these fit together it was just like you took these two giant ass pieces and you were like Look at that. I matched him up <laughs> like I am a forensic. I mean, um, he's I'm sure he's got a lot of smarts and he's real good at what he does. It was just really funny watching him like line those two things up. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, they do match. Like they're huge. You're like, high, f- high five his team. Yeah. yeah, we did it. We did it. <laughs> uh, the lab also found hairs in the area rug that had been forcibly removed from the head of someone. So they could tell that because the hairs had about three to four millimeters of skin sheath on the end. So gross. Yeah. Meaning they'd been pulled out of the head, but. I think surely everybody's seen that. Like I had to do that a lot in like skincare school because you have to make sure you get the whole hair out when you're like waxing or tweezing or whatever. But, you know, it's like a little bit thicker on the end. You can tell. So like 
that is the whole you get the follicle and everything yeah you get the whole entire thing so it's a it's pulled completely out so that's why they were thinking that maybe this could have been the perpetrator's head or the perpetrator's hair because maybe like as she's trying to fight or get away from him she pulls the hair out so they were really interested in in this hair the palm print was determined to have enough ridge lines to be able to compare it when they did find something they could compare it to. 48 hours after Polly was taken, Mark Class received a phone call that sounded like Polly. She told him that she was in a hotel room somewhere and that the kidnapper had stepped out for a minute, and then the line went dead. At this time, Mark's phone wasn't set up for a trace, and they would have to wait and just hope for another call so they could trace it. So after he got that first call... They did go ahead and set him up for a trace, like, just in case. You rhymed. Oh, my God, I did. <laughs> I'm a poet and didn't know it. Except you kind of, well, you didn't. I had to point it out to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know it. Okay. <laughs> in the two days since her kidnapping, 50,000 flyers were distributed. A search command center was created with a telephone bank that was manned 24 hours a day. Every one of the 12,000 plus leads was followed from the 60,000 phone calls that were received. A rapid start team computerized the information being called in to kind of like triage or filter the information based on its value. They were like serious about this case, which is really amazing. Yeah. Mark took a leave of absence from his job. He was running like a Hertz rental car company, I guess. And he took a leave of absence to set all this stuff up. And yeah, he put... It's amazing. All of his time and effort into it. That was also another kind of funny thing in the episode, though, when the guy was talking about how they had the basically like genius idea to computerize the leads that were coming in. Because, you know, you kind of forget this was 1993. That was not, I mean, I don't know if they were putting them on before, like index cards or something, but like yeah. everything was done by hand it was not commonplace to put it on a floppy yeah yeah exactly like it's just funny how the guy was like you know we were really uh, we were really pushing some boundaries here and putting these things into the computer <laughs> like it was just it's pretty amazing yeah it was kind of funny <laughs> that's why i love like i love learning about cases from either the 80s or the 90s or whatever but also like watching movies from then because all the technology completely dates it 100 mm -hmm. percent, and it's just so much i don't fun but you know what i mean like it's just interesting yeah. to be like oh my gosh well it kind of puts into perspective too like how unique it is to be growing up or have grown up during that time period where there was so much change like we have experienced so much of this like evolution of technology and it's happened in such a short period of time like and then there are some kids today that have only known. Right. Yeah. That have technology. only known that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really interesting to like go back and, you know, we do remember a time before there was text messaging or mm -hmm. before we even had the internet. I mean, we definitely grew up for a long time without having access to the internet. So mm -hmm. it's just such a huge, you know, change to see how many things, how Ooh. immediate everything is now and how yeah. you forget how slow everything happened before mm -hmm. even down to like having landlines and answering machines and things like that or like having to trace a call and having to have that trace be yeah. put in because nowadays you can 
look up anybody's number because it's all on cell phones. You exactly. Know? I mean, I'm sure there are ways to like disguise yeah. it or whatever. But. Well, but also like caller ID did not. I mean, I remember getting a whole all by itself the little box that was just the caller just ID. caller ID yeah exactly and it's like that was like big time when you finally got caller ID so and having the little teeny tiny tapes for the answering machine yes yeah so little I know yeah and you had to rewind them bitches and tape it back over it and whatever mm-hmm. like yeah it's not like you could just store a million messages and for any time you want to go back and use them or store shit on the cloud it was like Exactly. You had your floppy disk, and once you're out of room, you're out of room. Yep. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So, after a wait that probably seemed like years for Mark, he got a second call. It was short, but it sounded like Polly again, and this time it was long enough to be traced. The call was traced to a house about 30 minutes away. Since there wasn't a lot of time, the officers didn't have the opportunity to call in a SWAT team or other officers, so they just went with who they had available. When they got to the house, they found that it was just a regular house with a regular family. They, like, bust in. They tell everybody to, like, get on the ground. They're looking around. They don't see Polly. They don't see anything out of the ordinary. Like, it just looks like this family is, like, getting ready to have dinner or whatever. It's just, like, a normal evening. And they're like, okay, something's not right here. What the fuck is going on? So they talked to everybody in the house. And the a girl that lived in the house admitted that she'd made the calls. Because she was dared by her friends at school. That is so... When I watched the documentary and saw that, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Yeah, it's... What you, a cruel joke. Exactly. You get, like, deflated. It's like a physical response. It's awful. Because... I don't know. If I was that girl's mom, I would probably be, like, ground her ass for a while or something. I don't know. It's just like, you... Of yeah. course, kids are not going to realize the impact of that right the magnitude of something like that yeah it's unfortunate but it's just like you know that's a lead that they're chasing down that they could have been and they're wasting their time yeah yeah yeah, and to think about all of the hope that that inspired in mark and eve yeah because they're thinking she's alive she's okay like Mm -hmm. we can get her Mm -hmm. yeah it's horrible In mid-October, Kate and Jillian were brought back in to talk to another sketch artist, and this artist was known for her ability to put witnesses at ease and help them relax while they give their descriptions. Which I would think would be a really big part in that. Like, it would definitely matter. Yeah, so that they could kind of just, like, flow and let the memory come back, kind of. And And recall things that maybe you wouldn't if you were so wound up and upset. Yeah, so this time they were able to give a more, like, detailed and precise description, and they used that to create new flyers. At this point in the investigation, a $200,000 reward was offered by Winona Ryder, She actually grew up in Petaluma, and she said she saw herself in Polly. I don't know. So I thought that was kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah, she... It definitely got a lot of attention, this case did, so... And that was, like, primo top Winona Ryder days, you know? Mm -hmm, Exactly, yeah. And this was also one of the first missing person... It may have been the first missing person's case that was actually followed, like, on the internet step by step like because the internet was still really new and all those kind of things you keep throwing me these references and I just want to be like step by step oh (laughs) baby wow yeah yeah one 
we'll have a whole lot of fun. It's the worst ever. It really is. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I keep, didn't mean to like stop for a dance break, but I keep throwing them at you. Keep knocking them out of the park. Knocking them out. Yep. So that reward was followed by a ransom call to authorities for $10,000, which is kind of strange. How do people, because I understand the concept, obviously, of a reward, right? Like a cash reward for any tips or whatever. However, has anyone ever collected and not been immediately arrested for something like that? Because if you know anything, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so interesting. I want to like, I would like to hear about those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, I think too, it's like if you, if you end up coming forward with information, so so sometimes people see something that they think is like inconsequential. And so maybe it's something like, oh, I was working at a gas station on XYZ night and this person came in and blah, blah, blah. And after I saw his sketch on the news or I saw a picture of him on the news, I realized that I knew this guy from somewhere or whatever and they call it in and it ends up being the right person. This person gets arrested and now they get the reward because Mm. they had the information that's usually that's what they're looking for is, you know, something that maybe you didn't think was important or you didn't even know was related. But now that we've put out this other information, maybe it'll jog your memory and you're like, Oh wait, that has something to do with this. And I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Or if somebody like confessed to you or whatever, and maybe you were afraid to come forward, but now there's money on the line. Maybe you'll do it. That kind of thing. Interesting. But a lot of people do try to insert themselves into investigations. Like rewards can be helpful, but they can also be really harmful because people will be like, Oh, well I'm going to fucking get this money. I mean, right. Solve any crime by dinner time. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, there's that. But this guy calls. There's two hundred thousand dollars in the pot, and he says, "I want ten thousand. Which I feel like is kind of weird. If you're gonna ask for it, just ask for it, right? Well, maybe he's just being a little sweetie about it, and just be like, "No, you keep most of it. I just want a couple. Just give me the ten thousand. A couple pennies. Yeah. yeah. So that call was traced to an apartment in Petaluma, and this time the SWAT team did respond. But once again, it was a horrible. I guess, quote unquote, joke. Um, 20-year-old James Hurd was arrested and charged with extortion and thwarting an investigation. Like, what the fuck was going through this guy's mind? Well, and they also said uh, on the documentary it was impersonating a kidnapper or something like that. Yeah, yeah, because if he's calling and being like, I have her, give me the money. Like, that's just, this guy's 20 years old. He's old enough to fucking know... Not right to and wrong. Do, yeah, not to do this kind of stuff and, like, at least see some of the impact. Like, these are people... Who have lost their child. This is a child who is missing. Like, you do not go and just try to extort money from somebody in that situation. That is just the worst type of thing you could do, I yeah. feel like. I feel like the punishment for that kind of stuff should be really harsh. Like, really, just because... Of the emotional, I don't know. I just think it's so fucking horrible. And like, there's so many of those people that are like, I'm ex-military and I, you know, I can go in and do a rescue mission. Like I've got Intel and I can get it, but it's going to be $500,000 because I need to pay my guys and it's really dangerous and I got to get a helicopter and all this shit. And people are like, if it's going to bring my daughter back, fine. Like, yes, here's the money. Here's the money. Here's the money. And then they never hear from them again. Like these, those Mm -hmm. kind of people, they can burn in hell. Well, I mean, it's just how I feel. 
And there's nothing wrong with feeling that way because yeah. you're not wrong. I'm not wrong. No. This guy, I mean, I guess he didn't do... He wasn't making good choices. No, but he yeah, certainly was not making good choices. So he got arrested. So fuck that guy. Hopefully he has learned his lesson. I hope. Yeah, because it's been a long time. So maybe now he's like, hey, guys, I'm really sorry about that. On October 17th, the San Francisco Examiner published a letter written by Polly's parents in the letter, they started by addressing the kidnapper, quote, whoever you are, wherever you are, please return Polly to her family. She belongs here. We miss Polly so much. We miss the twinkle in her eye and her sweet humor. We long to see her beautiful smile and her musical voice. Do I say end quote? Sure. Like, I don't know how to... Yeah, you can say that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. End quote. End quote. quote. <laughs> <laughs> then they address Polly. Quote, our darling, if you can read this, please know that your mommy and daddy love you so much and will continue to search for you until we can hold you safely in our loving arms again. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I was worried I would cry reading that. That breaks my heart. Yeah. And just like to have to tell your child, like, I'm looking for you. We're going to find you. Like, hang in there. I just cannot imagine ever losing a family member, but to be, because... I'm not a parent, but to your the biggest job that you feel like you have is to protect your children, and then you can't mm -hmm. in this situation. Yeah, and you never want to. I mean, even I don't know, even little stuff like obviously m neither of my children have ever been abducted, and I certainly pray that they never are. But I mean, you always want to know that they are safe, that they're not you know hungry, that they're not too quick. You know, it's like, if you don't know where they are, you don't know, are they hurt? Are they scared? Are they crying? Are they asking for me? You know, do they understand that I'm doing everything that I can? You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you want to make sure that they're okay. And that like not knowing, I'm sure is just gut wrenching. I don't know how you, how you even get up in the morning. Like it's just, it's awful. Actually, during this time, Polly's father, Mark, we already kind of talked about that he helped establish that volunteer center to direct the search from her. But during this period of time, during the investigation, he pretty much abandoned his successful car rental business. He lost 30 pounds. He developed a severe sleep disorder and he began seeing a therapist. So, I mean, he was definitely... Like this was taking a major toll. On major it. toll. Absolutely. Like I just, I just can't imagine you know, what you'd be going through. All across America, there are banners and vigils. People are wearing lavender ribbons on their shirts because it was Polly's favorite color. There was still a 24-hour investigation, and any information that came in caused a reaction from investigators. The Navy and search and rescue experts had joined the search, and still it was almost two months before anything happened. On November 28, 1993, in Sonoma County, police were called to the house of Dana Jaffe. Sheriff's deputies came to the property off Pythian Road, where they met Dana, who was inspecting some of her 192-acre property when she came across something that she felt like she needed to report. Dana escorted the police to a clearing a few yards from the road and showed them that there were things scattered about. Among these were large silk cloth made to be a kind of hood that appeared to have makeup smears on it, an adult-sized dark sweatshirt turned inside out, 
a couple of strips of packing tape, a pair of child's tights tied in a knot at the knee, and there was hair in that knot, a beer bottle, a plastic six-pack holder, a box of matches, and an unrolled condom and wrapper. Dana Jaffe told the police that she caught a trespasser on her property not far from there about two months ago. So she said that on the night of October 1st, she got home around 1045 to 11 p.m. to relieve her babysitter, Shannon. And when Shannon left the house, she saw a man walking down the middle of the long and winding private driveway. So Dana lives on a huge property, like we said. And so her house is like way far back in the property. And her driveway is super long and it's like, you know, basically like wooded area all around it kind of thing. So when Shannon's driving to leave and she sees this guy here, she's like, who is this guy? Like you're in this property. You're certainly not supposed to be here. She said there was a stranded pinot on the side of the road and the man was very forcefully trying to get the babysitter to pull over. When she stopped, she asked what he was doing and she said her car window was rolled down and she could smell alcohol and body odor. And she could see that he had like leaves and branches and debris and stuff in his hair. He told Shannon that he got his car stuck and he needed a rope. She said that she called him illiterate for disobeying the signs for a private road and no trespassing. He placed his hands on her window and told her to get out of the car and demanded to know what's up the road. So at that point, he's pointing in the direction of the house. He wants to know where she came from. So good thing she did not get out of her car. And she told him there were people up the road who were going to call the police on her. And then she drove off. So she had to drive about two miles to find a payphone so that she could call Dana to tell her about the man on her property. So another good thing that she did, she called and warned her because who knew what he would have done. So Dana, who's like badass as hell, mm -hmm. ha gets her daughter gets in the car, and she brings a baseball bat with her, and she drives down to go see what the fuck is going on. She's taking care of business. Yeah, and she was like, I didn't want to be alone in the house, you know, just like a sitting duck waiting for this guy, so we jumped in the car and drove down. So when she passed where Shannon said the car would be, she did see the car there, but she didn't see a man anymore. So she went on into town, and she called the police at 11.46 p.m. So this is the same night that Polly was taken. So remember when we talked about that timeline earlier, Polly's mom called police at 11 o'clock. It's 1146 when Dana calls the police. So we're only 45 minutes difference. Mm -hmm. Like that's a pretty tight timeline for everything that's happening. Definitely. Around midnight, the sheriff's deputies arrived at the property to look for the man. Dana told the police that she didn't necessarily want him arrested, but she just wanted him off her property. And the deputies finally found him. When they found him, he appeared to be agitated. He did have alcohol in his breath, just like Shannon had said. And he was sweating profusely. They thought it was a little weird that he was sweating so hard because it was a really cold night. That's October. Yeah. And... He had leaves and dirt in his hair, as though he'd been on the ground. As though he had been on the as ground. As though he'd been on the ground. That was weird. Um, the man told the deputies that he was out sightseeing. And it, he got his car stuck. Like, it's fucking midnight. Yeah, sightseeing. <laughs> That's exactly like um, Diane Downs. 
And mm. she was like, we were driving. Yeah, just driving, looking around. Looking around. You can't see shit if it's pitch black outside. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Unless you're stargazing or something. Yeah. Yeah. If he'd at least had like a telescope with him and been like, I was, you know, checking out Orion's belt. Yeah. I was looking for the Big Dipper. Yeah. But no, he said he was sightseeing. So red flag number 11 billion at this right. point because he's already acting like a fucking lunatic because he's got his twig and berries in his hair <laughs> basically yeah so he said he got his car stuck he did not mean to end up on that property he just did and he got his car stuck in the process so why is he asking everybody to get the fuck out of their cars okay yeah he said he had tried to turn the car around that's when he realized it was stuck and so then he said he had been under the car trying to free it so he was trying to explain why he had, like, shit all in his hair. So he was like, I was trying to put, like, leaves and shit underneath the tires to create some traction because I was stuck. And when the deputies looked underneath the car, they were like, there's nothing under here. And also, the the way that the car was sitting, there's no way anybody could have fit underneath it. So they knew that he was lying, that he was just making it up. The deputies decided to administer a roadside sobriety test because... You know, they're smelling the alcohol in his breath. They're like, he's acting fucking weird. So they do the roadside test and he passed it. So then they get his consent to search the car. During the search, they see that he has three to four unopened cans of beer, Budweiser, and a paper bag, and two bags containing clothes, some of which were torn. When the deputies asked the man if he'd been drinking, he actually picked up one of the beer cans in the car, cracked it open, and started drinking it right there. Oh. And they're like... What are you doing? Like, not what we meant. Yeah, no, you can't just start. We, yeah, we weren't like, hey man, do you want to have a beer? We were asking if you've been drinking. So they made him pour it out. And at that point, he got super upset and they said he, they were going to have to pat him down. And in order to get him to comply, the officers said really that they would be well within their rights to arrest him for trespassing. Whoa, (laughs) what accent was that? Like, I wish, I wish everybody could have just seen the face I made because it was like, it was like I had an out of body experience and somebody else said, put that in my mouth. And then I was like, whoa, who was that? Yeah, like, as soon as it all came out, the face that she made was just so great. I was like, did I do that? Like, yeah, that exactly. was really weird. Um, that is so funny. Wow. They could arrest him for trespassing. <laughs> the man calmed down significantly when he figured out that he could have be going to jail. Oh, yeah. So he let him pat him down, and they didn't find anything incriminating on him. The deputies were still suspicious, and they decided to run his license number and his license plates. They should have poured out the Bud Heavy just because, because that shit is gross. Yeah, for sure. I just want to bring that up. Like, just as a punishment. Yeah. yeah. You should, anytime you see anything like that, you just pour it out immediately. It's gross. Yeah. yeah. Gross. Um, here's the problem, though, mm. with running his plates. They transposed some of the numbers of the license plate. So, literally, like, nothing came back. And the guy was like, well, fuck it. And so they ran his driver's license and it didn't come back with anything because the only thing at this time that would come back would be your driving history, Mm. your driving record. It's not going to show a criminal record. So they simply ask him, have you ever been arrested and are you on probation right now? And he's like, 
no, I've never been arrested. I'm not on probation right now. And they're like, all right, good enough. So they take him at his word and they let him go. So at that point, they'd been holding him for 45 minutes and they didn't have anything to hold him on. So they, I mean, they had to let him go. I get mm-hmm. it. They cleared the incidents, the incident with dispatch at 12.46 a.m. on October 2nd, 1993. So once they heard this story from Dana, the deputies put a call into the Petaluma police. But before they called the police, it looked like it was going to rain. So instead of following standard procedure for fear that the trace evidence would be lost, the detective picked up the evidence and put it in a box He left the unrolled condom there because he didn't have the tools to pick it up, but he wanted to go ahead and bring the stuff in so that they didn't lose what they had. Mike Meese and Ed Fryer got to the scene within an hour, and evidence from the scene was collected, and the site was investigated for days to look for Polly or any further evidence. Looking into the incident on the property, they found that the man who was trespassing was Richard Allen Davis. So now we have a name. Yes. Yeah, and unfortunately, for some of you, you're going to have to wait till next time to find out who is Richard Allen Davis and what happened to Polly Class. Unless you're super impatient and Google it, which I wouldn't advise that, because you want to stick around and hear the story straight from our hilarious mouths. Yeah. So, as always, you can, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you're going to get it immediately, and then if you're not, you'll get it next release. No worries at all. Yeah, that's totally fine. Totally fine. Um, but if you can't wait, you can always, you know, join the Patreon as well. Yeah. So we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Yep. Bye. Bye. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Queens Podcast and join our Facebook discussion group at Killer Queens Podcast where we discuss cases covered on the show and all things 90s. If you want to submit a case to be covered on the show, visit www.killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission and complete the form. If we cover the case, we'll even give you a shout out on the show. Killer Queens is researched, mixed, and mastered by our own damn selves. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. And our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Lilas! As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.